So if you could please, let's open up to Judges chapter 3. Last week we looked at Judges chapter 2, and tonight we're going to be getting into Judges chapter 3. And the book of Judges is really really a, a, a difficult book. It's a sad book. And the reason it's sad is because God had given so much to the children of Israel over the years through the desert, Uh, He prepared them in Egypt. He brought them through the desert for 40 years. He provided for them food and shelter, uh, water, uh, and even shoes on their feet. Um, You know, God gave them everything, even His very presence in the midst of them. I mean, think about that. I mean, they could look out their tent, and they could look toward the center of the gathering, and they could see there in the camp, they could see the tabernacle and the the cloud of pillar at at night and and the, the cloud that followed them. Uh, or that led them by the day in the pillar of fire at night. And if you were to see a sight like that, what would you think? And how would that change you to know that the very God who created all things is in your midst? We know that He's with us even now. Because His Word is true. Where two or more are gathered in His midst, there He is. Or Where two or more are gathered, there He is in the midst of them. And so we have that confidence. We have that assurance. We have that blessing of knowing that God is with us. And so as we look at this book, um, it is a a book of failure, really, because they should have, the children of Israel, they should have had every opportunity, and they did, to demonstrate obedience to the Lord and to prove that uh, obedience by by doing the things that God had told them to do. And and yet, lest we get uh, too hard on the Israelites, we have to remember that it doesn't matter what people group you belong to. If, um, if the Irish were the people coming out of Egypt, if it were the Italians, sorry, Pastor David, or it could have been the Germans, it could have been any, it could have been the Filipinos, it could have been a, a whole host of people. The, the heart of man is essentially the same. And uh, God knows this. And, and that's why he had to prove them in the wilderness. Uh, he already knew what was in their heart, but they needed to know and one of the awful things about this book is we just see Israel just in this in this constant roller coaster action of 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 conquering their enemies and then getting comfortable and complacent and then going back into their sinful lifestyle and serving the false gods in the in the places that God had brought them into and because they didn't wipe out those enemies like God told them to do like he commanded them to do they dwelt with them they intermarried with them and before long they began worshiping their gods and bringing the judgment of God upon them, and God would use their neighbors all around them to come in, and God used them as a tool to chasten His children. And and then they would cry out, and then God would um, have pity on them, and He would raise up a judge, um, someone like um, Samson or Gideon, or uh, as we'll see tonight, uh, Othniel or Ehud. And so, God is very gracious, but we see this book a very difficult thing. And last week we looked at chapter 2 and we saw, uh, remember that the, uh, the book of Joshua, I'm sorry, the book of uh, Joshua, yes, and the book of Judges, they really dovetail. These, last, these first two chapters of Judges really dovetail the last part of Joshua. That's why in chapter 2 of Judges we see the death of Joshua. And then we see in verses 11 through 19, we see that, that uh, unfortunate uh, cycle that the children of Israel got into uh, that I just uh, shared with you. And, and that really describes it all in detail, really from chapter 11 down through chapter, uh, I'm sorry, verse 11 down through verse 19. 
And um, we did get into the first seven verses, but let's look at the first seven verses. And we're going to look at all of chapter 3 tonight. And so let's read just the first um, uh, seven verses, six verses of chapter 3. And then we'll go back and take a look at them. And then we'll continue on with the rest of the chapter. It says, Now these are the nations which the Lord left. In other words, the, the nations that God left in the land that they were supposed to completely destroy, to eradicate, to dispossess. These are the nations which the Lord left. And, and the Lord didn't leave them, but he, it's, it's speaking as if God left them, but he left them there because he was going to prove to Israel their, their own heart. And he's going to chasten them uh, through this. Now these are the uh, nations which the Lord left that he might test Israel by them. That is, all who had not known any of the wars in Canaan, this was only so that the generations of the children of Israel might be taught to know war, at least those who had not formerly known it, namely five lords of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians, and the Hivites who dwelt in Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon to the entrance of Hamath, and they were left that he might test Israel by them to know, notice that, it almost sounds like God's learning something here, but it's really not the way it is, that he, to know whether they would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he had commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. Thus the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and they forsook, notice, they forsook their, I'm sorry, and they took their daughters to be their wives, and they gave their daughters to be their sons. And notice, this is the most horrible thing of it all, and they served their gods. If it wasn't bad enough that they started to intermingle in their marriages, which God told them not to do, now they are serving their gods. And such is the way for us. God tells us to stay away from certain things. He, he gives us prohibition about certain things. And we think better. We like to think that we've learned a lot. And maybe you're mature and maybe you have some life experience behind you and you think, well, I can... I can do it and not get caught, or I can do it better than so-and-so, and I won't get as far as that person did who got, got in trouble. I'll get right to the edge, and see, the problem is that's the deceitfulness of sin. We get right to the edge, and then the enemy presents us something else, and we think we can handle it, and he just keeps giving us more rope, more rope, and then finally there comes a point when you go to reach for the rope, and it's no longer there, and you fall, and we fall. And so we need to take heed to these things as well because they're no different than we are. There's a verse in the Bible that says, The Lord fashions our hearts alike, and He knows that we are dust. He fashions our hearts alike, and He knows that we are dust. And so let's go back to verse 1 there. It says, Now these are the nations which the Lord left that He might test Israel by them. That is, all who had not formerly known any of the wars in Canaan. Now, underline the word test there because you're going to see it down in a couple verses underneath this. And, and this literally means what it sounds like. It is to test. It's to prove. It's to try. And, and it's not like um, uh, it's, uh, you know, God does. He, he tests us. He proves us. He proves us. In fact, it's, it's used in the book of Judges five times. We see it here. Uh, we saw, actually see it in chapter 2, uh, verse 22. We see it here in, in the first verse. We see it in the fourth verse of this chapter that we're looking at. We see it in Judges 6, verse 39. And we also see it in Judges 7, verse 4. In all of these instances, it means the exact same thing. It means to prove and to try 
and and again, uh, we have to understand that the Lord obviously knows the answer. He doesn't need to test anything or anyone so that he can gain information. He does that so that we might know where we stand. Because I have this way of deceiving myself, and God won't have it. He says, uh, uh, you think you know yourself, and you think that you wouldn't do a certain thing. Under certain circumstances, I would not do this. And the Lord says, wow, you don't really know yourself. And the truth of the matter is, is that we can be in a situation And under the right circumstances or the wrong circumstances, at the wrong time, many of us would be surprised what we would be willing to do or would do out of our own um, volition. And so we should never trust in ourselves. We should always trust the Lord. And so never trust in the heart of man. Never trust in princes, but trust in the Lord. Never trust in the horse's feet and the the horse's legs, as, as the psalmist says. Don't trust in any of those things. Don't trust in chariots. Don't trust in the things that everyone else trusts in. Because all those things have holes in them. They're like broken cisterns. A cistern is supposed to hold water, but a broken cistern is one that has the promise of something and yet doesn't really deliver. The water is leaking out little by little, and every night you're noticing that the level is getting a little lower and a little lower. Pretty soon you have no water. And that's what the world does to us. That's what Satan likes to do to us. But the Lord knew when he tested them, when it says there that he tested the children of Israel, it means that he knew the answer, but they needed to understand. They needed to come to an understanding of who they are. So the Lord knows. In fact, I would encourage you to read Psalm 139. It's one of the greatest psalms when it speaks of omniscience, God's all-knowing, He knows everything and also His omnipresence, that He is in all places at once. That's one of the things that um, the Spirit of God is in all places at once right now. He's over in China. He's over in, He's everywhere that anything could be. He sees it all. So He's omniscient and they share the information. They're all the same mind. And so Jesus knows all things. And that's a great psalm. In fact, let me just read some portions of it to you that might encourage you. Psalm 139, let's just look at the first four verses. Again, God tests because He already knows, but we need to know because He cannot gain more information. What does it say in Psalm 139, verse 1? O Lord, David says, you have searched me and you've known me. Notice, you already know me, Lord. Before I was even born, you already knew me, and that's the truth. Isn't that what Jeremiah, what God said to Jeremiah on the day of his commissioning? He said, Jeremiah, before you were even yet in the womb, I knew you. I formed you and I made you and I had a plan for your life. Isn't that wonderful? And the same thing is true for you and I. God saw our life already beginning before we were even conceived. And he saw the end of it. He knew exactly everything in between. Doesn't that encourage you? That really encourages me because then it takes my my desire to try and prove something to anyone. And it helps me to just relax. And you know that sometimes when we would just relax and let God do in us and through us the things that we think that we have to struggle and and make happen, we actually get further along if we just would relax and let Him do the work. It's when I try to get involved and I try with my own intellect to get involved that I mess things up. And it takes me longer to get to where He wants me to be. But notice, you have searched me, O Lord, and you've known me. You've known my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. That one always gets me, to think that God can see 
My thoughts are far off. They, I haven't even thought it yet, and God is already going, in about 10 minutes, this thought's going to run across Rob's mind, and it's probably ice cream. <laughs> and so he says, you understand my thought afar off, and you comprehend my path and my lying down, and you're acquainted with all my ways, for there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. So even the words that I speak, 10 minutes from now, whatever sentence I'm going to be on, God has already heard it. He's already, he already knows it. I don't even know what I'm going to say in 10 minutes. I have no how far along I'm going to be in 10 minutes, but he knows, as if it's already been recorded. And that, to me, is awesome. And I love what it says. Let's skip down to verse 7. This is where his omnipresence is. Where can I go from your spirit, David would say? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. I don't know about you, but that is awesome news. He knows all, and we cannot hide our actions or even our thoughts from Him. Again, the phrase I love so much is, a faith that cannot be tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. And so God knows, and therefore we can relax and just enjoy Him and enjoy this ride that we, that we are. We're like in this uh, um, roller coaster of righteousness with God, and if we just let Him do it, and so... And God has to allow these things to prove us, again, so that we may know and are accountable. And He te tests us, He chastens us in instructive correction, and He doesn't tempt us. And there is a difference. You remember in James chapter 1, verse 13, what does James tell us? It says, Let no man say when he is tempted, again, when we're talking about testing here, and even chastening, notice what it says. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, when it's finally had the end, it brings forth death. And that is the slippery road, the slippery progression of sin. And the devil is the one who tempts, but God tests, he proves, and he even chastens. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. We'll look at this briefly. This is a, a great verse too, and it's not one that we like, but nonetheless, it is God's Word, and we can be encouraged in it. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 3, it says, For consider him, Paul is saying, consider Jesus, in other words, who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted the bloodshed, striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. And here's the exhortation. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. The idea of chastening is really wonderful. It really uh, is, it, it talks about a cultivation of, of a mind and, and morals, and it admonishes. And it, it reproves, uh, even with punishment, but it it's includes the training, even the care of the body. I mean, uh, God allows us to be chastened to, to teach us, but it's always with a purpose. There's a, there's, a, there's a goal in mind, unlike when perhaps you were younger and your father told you not to touch something, and you touched it, and then he just walloped you one, or he, you said something uh, a little off and, and, and you were spanked, and maybe you didn't even realize what it was. 
and perhaps he, out of anger, continued to maybe spank you a few more times than perhaps what he should have. But see, God doesn't do that. When God chastens us, it's always with the intention of instructing us to righteousness. And if he didn't instruct us, let's go on here. It says, verse 6 in that same chapter, For whom the Lord chastens, or for for whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every one, every son whom he receives. And the word chastens there again is, is chastisement. It's, it's a molding of the character, either by reproof or admonition. And again, it's always instruction. So if you're going through something and you're not learning, you're probably going to go through it again. You're probably going to go through whatever it is that got you into that place again. Because it's sort of like a test. You know, when your teacher gives you a test, a pretest, you fail the test, he says, well, I'm going to give you the test again, and I'm going to take the average of the two grades. You know, that's grace, isn't it? And so, but that's what God does. And he says, verse 7, he says, If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which we all are, have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. In other words, the King James says you're bastards. Because that's what a bastard is, is an illegitimate son or daughter. That's what that is. And so, but we are not because the Lord does chasten us. And he says, furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few few days chastened us as it seemed best to them. But he, God, for our profit that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening seems to be joyous for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterwards, and we all know this, afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Isn't that wonderful? You've been chastened by your own, you know, your physical father, and then you know you've done something wrong, and he rightly um, chastened you. Maybe it was a spanking, maybe it was sending you to your room for a day whatever the punishment may have been, and then he comes into the room after you've been there for a while and he explains to you why. This is why. This is why I had to do what I had to do, and here's my heart behind it. This is the reasoning. And all of a sudden, there's a, there's a relaxation. Now the child is, is knowing that my, my father has done this to me because he loves me. If he didn't love me, he would treat me like a bastard son. He would treat me like an illegitimate where he doesn't care. But a father or mother who cares is one who chastens, and that's who God is. And that's why he, he tests, he proves, and he continued to do it, and he continues to do it today, and to us as well. He, he chastens those whom he loves. So going on here in verse 1 uh, in Judges 3, it says, now these, now these are the nations which the Lord left that he might test Israel by them, that is, all who had not known any of the wars in Canaan. Notice the wars in Canaan. And what kind of wars were these? Was this just two warring factions against each other? Was this just one nation against another? And because they, they ate different things, because they dressed a different way, maybe they even looked a little bit different. Was it just because of those differences that they hated each other like what we see today? No, it wasn't that at all. In fact, the reason why God brought them into the promised land, into the land of Canaan, was to defeat and to dispossess seven nations that had gone over the line. They had been going over the line for years. God gave them plenty of time to repent, and they did not. And so uh, this was a holy war. And this wasn't even a war between the Israelites and the Canaanites. This was a war between God and 
a rebellious seven nations, and God was using his own people as the lightning rod against those seven people, those seven nations, excuse me. So it was a holy war. And they were to be a part of God's judgment against those nations and against those people. And it's interesting to see how God uses nations, even pagan, ungodly nations, um, to against His own people. He even uses ungodly, pagan nations against His own people to get them to turn to God and to repent. But He also punishes those nations as well because of their ungodliness and their idolatry. And a good example is Babylon. And God used a pagan, ungodly nation like the Chaldeans or the Babylonians to bring judgment upon his own people and even called Nebuchadnezzar, the king of that nation, his servant. He called Nebuchadnezzar his servant. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 25. This is interesting. So this is a war a holy war between God and these people. And God was going to use His own children as judgment against this people group. And it's not unlike God to do that. We see it in the Scripture. We see it here in Jeremiah 25. Look at verse 1 with me. It says, Now remember, Jeremiah is prophesying during a time when Nebuchadnezzar and the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, they're literally on the outskirts of Jerusalem. They got embankments and they're basically laying a siege to the city in around 606 B.C. And so there the inhabitants are, scared to death. They're running out of food. They're starting to eat eat, eat their babies because their their food sources are, there's famine in the land because they're cut off from all their food supplies. But notice what what God says to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 25. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the peoples of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, which was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, From the thirteenth year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, even to this day, this is the twenty-third year in which the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken to you, rising up early and speaking, but notice, you have not listened. And the Lord has sent to you all of his servants, the prophets, rising early and sending them, but you have not listened, nor inclined your ear to hear. So they said, Repent now every one of his evil way and his evil doings, and dwell in the land that the Lord has given to you and your fathers forever and ever. Do not go after other gods to serve them and worship them, and do not provoke me to anger with the works of your hands, and I will not harm you. Yet you have not listened to me, says the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the works of your hands to your own hurt. Now notice verse 8. This is interesting. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not heeded my words, notice what happens. Behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, says the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. Can you believe that? My servant. This, at the time, Nebuchadnezzar was a pagan idolater, and yet God knew, in his knowledge, he knew that Nebuchadnezzar was going to come to him. We read about that in Daniel chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar is probably in heaven, and, and God speaks to him as a servant because he was doing his bidding to bring judgment against his own people, to chasten them, to even judge them for their idolatry. And God was going to use this pagan nation 
And he says, And I'll bring Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, I'll bring them against this land, against its inhabitants, and against those nations all around, and I will utterly destroy them and make them an astonishment, a hissing, and a perpetual desolations. Moreover, I will take from them the voice of mirth, and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, and the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstones, and the light of the lamp. And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations, notice, shall serve the king of Babylon seventy years. Seventy years. And so there it is. Now notice verse 12. This is important. Then it will come to pass. Now notice how the tables turn. God was going to use Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians to come against his own people. Now watch, watch what happens to Babylon. Then it will come to pass, verse 12, when 70 years are completed, that I'll punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, says the Lord. And I'll make it a perpetual desolation. So I will bring on that land all my words which I have pronounced against it, all that is written in this book which Jeremiah has prophesied concerning all the nations. For many nations and great kings shall be served by them also, and I will repay them according to their deeds and according to the works of their own hands. Isn't that amazing that God would use Nebuchadnezzar? Some would say, well, why would you use them to punish your own people and then punish them for punishing your people? Well, the answer is Nebuchadnezzar was not a puppet. Uh, In other words, Nebuchadnezzar had his own free will. During all of this, he was completely oblivious to God, but God knew this man's heart and what his intentions were doing and where his intentions were slanted toward. And God just allowed him to carry out his own wicked schemes because he was a man who was an egomaniac. He was, um, uh, wanted to conquer the whole known world, and, and, and that's what he liked to boast in, and that's where his pride was. And yet God would also get a hold of that man. Pretty amazing, isn't it? And so we also see this. We're not going to read this tonight for the lack of time, but I would like to share something with you. God would also use Cyrus. Cyrus would be the one who would come and conquer Babylon. He would use another nation, an ungodly nation, to conquer another ungodly nation. And that's what happened that night in Belshazzar when he was in the room and they were drinking and having this drunken orgy. Remember that night that Belshazzar lost his life and the Chaldeans were taken over by the Medes and the Persians. And so God would use um, the Medes and the Persians as his lightning rod against Babylon. And, and even called Cyrus his shepherd. His shepherd. Cyrus his shepherd. You know, it's interesting. Cyrus was the one who allowed the Jews to come back into their land and to build not only their temple uh, after the 70 years of captivity, but he also allowed them to build the walls around Jerusalem. And that was, of course, a prophecy uh, that was fulfilled in, in Daniel, partially. Uh, Daniel 9, verses 24 through 26, I believe it is. But the one thing I think it's really interesting about Cyrus is that God called Cyrus, who was this king of Persia, he anointed him some 200 years, or he, um, um, he called um, the, the Cyrus, his anointed, some 200 years before he was even born. Isaiah records for us in uh, Isaiah 45, it says, uh, verse 1, it says, Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus. And Cyrus hadn't even been born yet. It'd be another close to 200 years before Cyrus would even be conceived. And yet God called him by name. And I love it what he says down in verse 3. He says, 
I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches, hidden riches of secret places that you may know that I, the Lord, who call you by name. He even goes down, he says, I have called you, verse 4, at the end of that, he says, I have called you by your name. I have named you, though you have not known me. And then down in verse 5, the very last part of that, I will gird you, though you have not known me. I don't know about you, but that's pretty... And then when, when that was read to Cyrus, can you imagine how he was shaken in his boots? That 200 years prior, God called him to do what he did for the Jews. And I think that's wonderful. But God tests, right? That he might test Israel and that all who had known uh, had not known any wars uh, in Canaan. In verse 2, he says, this was, this was only so that the generations of the children of Israel might be taught to know war, at least those who had not formerly known it. Namely, the five lords of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians, the Hivites who dwelt in Mount Lebanon, from Mount Baal Hermon, that's, that's Hermon, Mount Hermon. And we were just there just a few weeks ago, and to be uh, to see Mount Hermon snow-capped from the top of Mount Arbel was an amazing sight. It was a beautiful day. It was kind of chilly, but the, the sky was completely clear. And we stood up there on Mount Arbel, which looks down. It's one of the highest peaks in that area, and it looked down on the, on the Galilee, the Sea of Galilee. And right immediately to your north, you can see several miles in the distance, several miles in the distance, Mount Hermon standing there in all of its glory and snow-capped even in the summertime. Amazing sight. So from Mount Baal Hermon to the entrance of Hamath. And see, the thing is, is as, they're, um, uh, as God is going to use to teach them war, this holy war, that God, they could see God's hand working in and through them. As long as they were obedient, God would give them the victory. And the thing we have to remember is that righteousness and freedom, it's worth fighting for. You know, we, we shouldn't just lay down all of our, you know, we need to fight. And I don't mean fight physically, okay? God doesn't call us to pull out our guns and our swords. But where we need to fight the most is on our knees. And do we believe it? Do we believe that we need to fight on our knees? We need to fight in prayer. Believe me, God can do more through prayer than any man with a bazooka can do. He can do a lot more. And He can do it peaceably. And He can do it rightly. And so, as Christians, we need to fight this battle first through prayer. And then, if opportunity is given to us, we need to express that in our ballots as we go to uh, vote for representatives and even presidents. We need to make our, uh, our voice known. That's how we fight. We don't fight physically. We fight with, our, with prayer and um, through legislation. Lastly, but we first we pray. So we need to pray. So verse 4, it says, When they... And they were left that he might test them. These nations were left in the land that God might test Israel by them to know, notice, to know, whether they would obey the commandments of the Lord which he had commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. The idea of know is to, to be known or to reveal. See, again, God knew, but he's allowing, he wanted to know whether they would obey. The idea is that he wanted to reveal what they were, how they would respond. Because that's when we're accountable. Uh, you know, God can't um, reprove us until we act upon our own heart. And so He tests us. He allows something to come to pass. He already knows the end of it. But He wants to know. He wants it to be revealed so that we can see it. That's the thing. And why, why were these things happening? Why were... You know, the, why were these nations coming against them? Well, somewhere the fathers should have obeyed. We know that they didn't. 
the fathers should have obeyed, and they should also be instructing their children in their history and in things that they've learned. And secondly, the children needed to listen and to be obedient. So it really causes two, you know, like the, the old phrase, uh, it takes two to tango. Uh, the fathers and the mothers, they need, to, they need to be faithful to share and to instruct, and the kids, they need to be willing to um, be obedient and to listen. And, and so um, we're all in that right now with our, with our grandkids, with your kids, uh, uh, with your own self. And it's so important that we do that. So going on to verse 5, he says, Thus the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And again, this should never have been. This was not God's will. But because of their own disobedience, this was the consequence. There are consequences for sin. In fact, your sin will always find you out. Uh, let me read to you Numbers chapter 32. Numbers chapter 32 and 21 through 23. Let me read it to you. This is when uh, Moses was speaking to the tribe of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh before they came across the uh, uh, Jordan River into the Promised Land. And he said to them, And all your armed men cross over the Jordan before the Lord until he has driven out his enemies from before him, and the land is subdued before the Lord. Then afterward, you, speaking of the Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, then you can return and be blameless before the Lord and before Israel, your brothers, and this land shall be your possession before the Lord. But notice this, but if you do not do so, then take note, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. And sin always has a way of finding us out. There are people, there are people who have committed murders, and I know that if, uh, if uh, there's, some, there's a brother... Um, that we know who has been in major crimes uh, for most of his career. There's been a couple of them, actually, that I know, a couple of brothers that I know are Christians, that they've been in major crimes involved in, Lee County, or in uh, Monroe County for several, for a couple decades. And they have stories to tell. And the thing is, is you can, you can bury someone, you can go through all of your, uh, the things that you try to do to hide and cover up your crime and Time has a way, God has a way of sneaking up behind you when you think you're scot-free and you've gotten away with it and all of a sudden there's a piece of DNA that shows up. Way back, you know, crimes that were committed many years ago when DNA wasn't even used because they didn't even have the technology, but now they do. And now they can go back and exhume uh, persons and they can find uh, evidence and, and arrest people in their old age. Some of these old men are spending time in bar, behind bars for the rest of their life because of that kind of thing. But your sin will always find you out. Going on in verse 6, it says, And they took their daughters to be their wives and gave their daughters to their sons, and they served their gods. This is an, a, a really incredible indictment that God gives to uh, the children of Israel. And this, unfortunately, was a partial fulfillment of the prophecy that God spoke to them earlier. I would encourage you to write these two uh, uh, scripture references down. And I've said them before, but I'm going to say it again because they're so important. Deuteronomy chapter 7. And, and make it a little note off to the side here on verse 6. Maybe write these down. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 through 11. And also... Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 16 through 18. Read those in connection with what these first six verses are, and it'll make a lot of sense to you. And it's just God, again, telling them beforehand, telling them beforehand. And it's a partial fulfillment because they would continue to do this for some time. And that's why they would go into captivity. 
That's why the Assyrians would take the northern ten tribes. That's why Babylon would come and grab the, the southern two tribes. All because of this. And it started back here, and it just continued to perpetuate. And isn't it a horrible thing about human nature? We just don't seem to really listen. We don't seem to learn. Why is that? It's because of sin. It's because of stubbornness. We, we, we don't want to learn. We don't want anybody telling us that we have messed up, that we have sinned against God or have done anything wrong because our pride, and the devil loves this because he's the author of pride. He loves it when, when somebody is so proud in them, their own accomplishments, their own uh, whatever it is, and when they can stand up and say, this is not for me because I'm such and such. I've, I've done this and I've done that, and God's thinking to himself, I don't care what you've done. I don't care where you've been. I don't care what family you've come from. I don't care what pedigree you have. I don't care if you went to Oxford and Yale. I don't care if you have a great job in the White House. I don't care if you live on Capitol Hill. I don't care how much money you have or how much money you don't have. Uh, the soul that sins shall surely die. And see, that's where the gospel is so wonderful. We can have this confidence that when God, um, when he drops the hammer, he's serious. But he loves us that he took the judgment out upon his son. And that's who we have to believe in, folks. We have to believe in Jesus. We have to keep telling people to believe in Christ. He's, he is the world's only hope right now. Our hope is not in a vaccine. Our hope is, should be Christ. Our hope should be Jesus Christ. So going on in verse 7, we find our first judge, Othniel. It says, So the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. Amazing. It's happening again. They've done evil in the sight of the Lord, and they forgot the Lord their God, and they served the Baals and the Asherahs. And these are uh, Canaanite gods and goddesses uh, of that region that were very popular. But notice that they forgot the Lord their God. The word here means to be oblivious of. From want of memory or attention, they've forgotten, they've ignored they cease to care. That's really what the word is. The word means. They cease to care about the Lord their God. It just kind of slipped their mind. And why did it slip their mind? Because they weren't being faithful. The elders, the parents, weren't being faithful to tell their kids. And this hits me square in the eye, in the, in between the eyes too, because it reminds me of how often I need to be in the Word with my daughter, and um, and I need to uh, take that very seriously. And so you ought to as well. We ought to take that very seriously. So they forgot the Lord their God and they served the Baals. And it was through neglect and their lack of care that they had forgotten the rock who bought them. Yes, we've been bought. Isn't that what Peter said? That we're a purchased people, uh, uh, a valued possession, um, uh, a, a, a purchased people is really what he said. And the thing is, is, if we aren't careful, we the church... We can do the same thing. So we need to be careful that the ease and the allurements all around us in this world don't make us complacent and lazy. And folks, it does. It just does. And I don't know about you, but it's the, what's happening right now in our country has kind of shaken the trees, hasn't it? It's really shaken people. And that's a good thing. Think of that as a grace of God, in a, in a sense. It's His mercy that He's doing this. Because how else would we wake up how else is it that we would, we, we would kind of come out of our slumber? Sometimes I just need to be slapped. <laughs> I need to be slapped and, and with a cold, wet hand and say, Wake up, Kellogg. Wake up. I need to be woken up. And unfortunately, human nature, it's human nature to follow the path of least resistance. And that's why 
we and the children of Israel had all these issues. So going on to verse 8, it says, Therefore the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the children of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. Now, when the Lord says that he was hot, that literally means what it sounds like. He was incensed, he was burning and grieved, and he was furious. And I don't know about you, but whenever that happens, when, when God is that mad, I want to duck. I want to duck. I want to find the lowest rock, and I want to slink underneath it and be as quiet as I can. I do not want to be on the wrathful side of God. Because see, wrath and love are the opposites of the spectrum. You can't really love like God does unless you hate, unless you hate um, sin. And so... Um, these things are opposites, and they have to be working like that. Because if you really love, you can't, you can't just condone sin. You can't just let things go. You've got to deal with it. And so, as he says, he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim. He sold them, and the word there is literally mean uh, sold as merchandise, like selling into slavery. That's really what it means. And it ought to remind us when uh, Joseph's brother sold him to the Ishmaelites. Remember when he did that. And so this is the same, same kind of thing. He sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim. Say that word three, three times really fast. Um, and the children of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. His name literally means Cushan of double wickedness. How is that for a name? Double wickedness. Not, not, this, not just Cushan the wicked. No, he's double wickedness. So whoever this guy is, uh, he's a pretty wicked individual. But notice verse 9. It says, When the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the children of Israel who delivered them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. Now, I want you to notice this phrase and underline it too because it's really important. When the children of Israel, when they cried out to the Lord. Underline cried out to the Lord because that is desperation, isn't it? When 9-11 happened, everyone was crushed. Everyone was crying out to the Lord. When this is happening in our country, there's many people silently behind doors really scared. And they're crying out to the Lord. Even most of us are crying out to the Lord saying, Lord, how long? How long is it before we can get back to normalcy? But they cried out to the Lord. And we have to remember that the Lord, He is very compassionate, not only to believers, but especially to unbelievers. He is compassionate. He is full of mercy. He is full of compassion. That's who our God is. I love what it says in Psalm 107. And let me just read a, a handful of verses to you. It's a, it's a psalm, uh, and it says, O oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His mercy endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom He has redeemed from the hand of the enemy and gathered out of the lands, from the east and from the west and from the north and to the south. They wandered in the wilderness in a desolate way. And here, David, or the psalmist, is talking about Israel. They found no city to dwell in. They were hungry and thirsty, and their soul fainted in them. And notice in verse 6, it says, Then they cried out to the Lord. That's what we're reading right now. They cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and guess what? He delivered them out of their distresses, and He led them forth by the right way, that they might go to a city for a dwelling place. And then in verse 8 of Psalm 107, Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for His goodness and for His wonderful works to the children of men. 
for he satisfies the longing soul, and he fills the hungry soul with goodness. And those who sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, bound in affliction and irons, because they rebelled against the words of God and despised the counsel of the Most High, therefore he brought down their heart with labor, and they fell down, and there was none to help. And notice, finally, in verse 13, Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them out of their distresses. The idea is that when we are when we are completely, completely desperate, when we cry out to the Lord, the Lord always, He always um, pays attention to, He always responds to true desperation. And are you desperate tonight? Are you desperate to really have a deeper walk with Him? Are you desperate in your own situation over your family, that maybe the state of your family, maybe a husband, maybe it's your spouse, Maybe it's a friend, maybe it's a loved one, but are you desperate? Cry out to the Lord and He will hear you. So, when the Lord, verse 9, um, I'm sorry, when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them. And we see this first one uh, for the children of Israel who delivered them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. And we know that Caleb and his family were from the tribe of Judah. And notice that the very first judge that th- this book talks about is, was from Judah. He was from Judah. And why is that a big deal? Because in the very first chapter of Judges, remember when they were coming into the land after the death of Moses or after the death of Joshua, and they still had some work to do, didn't they? And they came before the Lord and they said, Who's going to go up first for us to deliver our, you know, to go against our enemies? And they, um, they asked the Lord, and the Lord says, Judah shall go up first. Judah. Judah is supposed to go up first. And, um, and why is this? Because Joshua, I'm sorry, um, not Joshua, uh, Jacob, excuse me, remember in Genesis 49, on his deathbed as he was blessing his 12 sons, what was the one thing he said about Judah? He said, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from before his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. So already God is putting Judah as this a leader of the tribes, and he was going to be the leader. And ultimately, it would be through Judah that not only the first real king of, of Israel, who was, uh, was David, even though it was Saul, he was from Benjamin, but the first real king that God really approved of was David from the tribe of Judah. And who would ultimately come through his loins, through his line, if you will, our, our Savior Jesus Christ. And notice verse 10, So the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. That's interesting, isn't it? So the Spirit of the Lord came upon Othniel, and he judged Israel, and he went out to war, and the Lord delivered Cushath, uh, Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. Boy, say that three times really fast. Maybe four times if you're really smart, and you can do it. But notice that uh, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. So you and I enjoy something that the Old Testament saints never had. You and I have the Spirit of God indwelling us permanently, but in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God didn't indwell the believer or indwell anyone. He came upon them at different times to accomplish his means, and this is a good example. And notice what can happen through a man who's got the Spirit of God upon him and who was insignificant to everyone else. God chose Othniel from Judah, right? He, he, he called him and he empowered him. And what can God do through a, a man who nobody else looks at and thinks, uh, this guy, is, he's, not, he's not handsome. 
He can't speak well. He doesn't have the pedigree. He didn't go to Yale or Harvard or Oxford. Um, he didn't go to um, you know Princeton. Um, he doesn't have all. He doesn't have a, a blonde girlfriend. Um, so he's you know he's nobody, right? And so God looks at all that and says, mm, I don't need any of that stuff. Watch what I'm going to do through this insignificant person. And God loves to do that. And He loves to pour out His Spirit on one that nobody could, could care less about. And I love that. God is not a respecter of persons. He doesn't need authority. He doesn't need man-made authority. He doesn't need pedigrees. He doesn't need fancy jobs and titles. He doesn't need money even, per se. God can do a lot with nothing. And so the Spirit of God comes upon him. In verse 11, So the land, notice, had rest as a result for 40 years. So God brought Othniel, the son of Kenaz, um, against uh, Cushan, Rishathaim, and prevailed. And it says the land had rest for 40 years. And then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. And that leads us right into our next, um, our next judge of Israel. In fact, the whole time of Othniel was really the first of seven periods in the book of Judges. Because he delivered, you know, they, they served the, the king of Rishathaim. Uh, they served him for eight years. They had, after the battle, they had rest for 40 years. And that was the first of the seven periods. The second of those seven periods happens right now in the, in, with Ehud. And notice what it says in verse 12. Excuse me, one second. <clears throat> Excuse me. It says, And the children of Israel, again, did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. Now remember, Moab was a descendant of Lot. Remember Abraham's nephew. It's recorded for us in Genesis chapter 19 how his two daughters, after they came out of Sodom and Gomorrah, remember that place was completely destroyed and the two daughters, uh, in fear of uh, not having any kind of uh, prosperity, or posterity, I should say, posterity, is that right? Um, uh, they got their father drunk, and they had intimate relationships with him, and they both had a son. And one was called Ammon, or Ben-Ami, and the other one was called Moab. And so these two people, these two nations, really came out of an incestuous relationship between Lot and his two daughters, which God obviously did not sanction, nor did he approve of that. It was horrible, and, and they got him drunk to do it. And so he wasn't, a very, um, wasn't in control of himself. But verse 13, it says, Then he gathered to himself the people. So this Eglon, king of Moab, which is to the south and east of Israel, this king gathered the people of Ammon. Notice that's the, one of the brothers of Moab was Ammon and Amalek. These are the Amalekites. They went and they defeated Israel and they took possession of the city of Palms. The city of Palms, as you know, is Jericho. And when we were there just recently, it's an amazing thing. Right in the valley of Jordan there, in the valley, um, is, is, a, is a major fault line, actually. They call it a, um, I forget what it's called, um, but it's, it's literally a fault line that lines right in between in the Jordan Valley. And right on the eastern side of the Jordan, the western side of the Jordan, I'm sorry, is Jericho. And even to this day, palm trees, for some reason, they're flourishing all down throughout that area. You'll just drive for miles and see them. I got pictures and videos of the bus driving and just seeing hundreds and hundreds of thousands of palm trees. And so they came and they took possession of Jericho. 
because Jericho had already been defeated, remember, previously by the, by the Israelites. So it was, a, it was a complete ruins, but strategically it was a great place for an army to be. So in verse 14, the children of Israel, they served Eglon. It sounds like, sounds like the name of some kind of dairy farm, Eglon. You know, uh, if, I was a, uh, if I started my own egg business, I think I'd call it Eglon, or maybe not. Um, but Eglon, uh, king of Moab, they served him 18 years. But when the children of Israel, notice, cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up another deliverer. And this one was Ehud, the son of Gerah, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. By him, the children of Israel sent tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. So here, uh, there's something about the, the children of Benjamin that's really interesting. And we see them at the end of the book of Judges, um, uh, actually in a really bad spot, and we'll get to that. But um, the Benjamites were these group of people where they were ambidextrous. They, had, uh, they could have a sword in both, hand, both hands, and they were equally skilled with anything with, with both hands. And they were really skilled with their left hand. And um, that was going to be a, uh, an interesting advantage for them. And we're going to see it right now in what Ehud did to Eglon. And this is a verse that we know very well. You can also, if you want to look at um, uh, Judges 19 through 21, you'll see all of this, this whole story about the Benjamites and, and how they actually initially gained victory over the children of Israel during a, a spat between the tribes. You'll see that uh, later on when we get to it. But notice verse 16. Now Ehud, he made himself a dagger, and it was a double-edged, and it was a cubit in length. So this thing was 18 inches at least in, lo- in length, and he fastened it under his clothes on his right thigh, because if he's left-handed like I am, or actually if you're looking at me, this is, you know, whatever, this is my left hand, I put it on my right side, so when I pull it out of its scabbard, I've got, I can get to it. But that was very uncommon for someone to be left-handed. left-handed. So he hid it under his clothes on his right thigh, and so he brought the tribute. Or, and this tribute was probably domestic animals, probably silver and gold and maybe other precious things. They brought it to the king of Eglon, the king of Moab. And I love what it says here. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. He was a fat man, and I love that. He was so fat. In fact, let me tell you something. He was so fat, in fact, that when he, when he backs up, you can actually hear that little sound, boop, 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 like when the, um, when the, uh, uh, the garbage men, when they, when they come to your house at 6 o'clock in the morning and then you wake up in a cold sweat because you forgot to take out your trash, that same sound, he was so huge, he was so fat, and his feet, I bet, were really small. You know why? Because nothing grows in the shade. Nothing grows in the shade. So that's all the uh, divertisement you get for, the, for tonight. Go, let's go on to verse 18. It says, when he had finished, I'm glad I can't hear you either scowling or I can't hear anybody, so it's probably a good thing. And when he had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who had carried the tribute but he himself turned back from the stone images that were at Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And we don't really know what these stone images are. Some believe it could have been the 12 stones that the Israelites took out of the Jordan the night that they came over. Remember, as they walked through the Jordan, each of the uh, brothers of the 12 tribes, they took a stone and they took it to Gilgal that first night. We don't know if that's what this is. You know, maybe uh, people were turning this into some kind of... Uh, uh, idol, you know, we don't really know, but there they were. It could have been that. So they, but he turned himself back from the stone images that were at Gilgal, and he said, "I have a secret for you, O king. 
And the king said, Keep silence. And all who attended him went out from him. So Ehud came to him. Now he was sitting upstairs in his cool private chamber. So here's this very large Jabba the Hutt-like creature sitting in his cool private chamber upstairs where the fan is probably blowing really nicely and he's got that nice dry, cool air blowing over his very large abdomen. And so there he is. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And I wonder how he said that. You know, to me, I, I get weird like that, and I think about how, how does he say this word, this phrase? You know, did he say to him, you know, I have a message from God for you, in all seriousness? Or did he say, oh, I have a message from God for you? You know, because the tone says it all, doesn't it? And, you know, it's interesting, as Ehud would go in before this king, certainly the guards, they would examine him. And because he was left-handed, he put the, the knife on his, on his right thigh underneath probably his thing, his whatever outer clothing he had. And they could check on the side that they would think because most people were right-handed. So they could have checked him there, saw nothing. And so now Ehud's got this wonderful advantage that nobody else has. And so he came to him. Now he was sitting upstairs in his cool private chamber. Um, then Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And so he arose, Eglon did, because if you have a message from God, he has a respect, at least something. So he rose to his feet. Ehud reached with his left hand, took the dagger from his right thigh, and he thrust it into his belly. Isn't that, nice to, isn't that a nice description? And uh, even the hilt, even the part of the, of the blade at the end, where there's a, usually a little notch or something where the handle is, even that went in after the blade. So he did it with such, such force, and it was so sharp that it went completely right into him, and the dagger, um, and he did not draw the dagger out of his belly, and his entrails came out. Isn't that great to know that if you've had dinner tonight, now you can think about this imagery? But um, so that's what happened. And so then Ehud, he went out from through the porch and he shut the doors in the upper room behind him and he locked them. And when he had gone out, Eglon's servants came to look and to their surprise, the doors of the upper room, they were locked. And so they said, well, he's probably attending to his needs in the cool chamber. In other words, he's probably going number two. He's probably going number two. And we see the same thing in the King James in the first Samuel chapter 24. Remember when uh, David was running from Saul, that Saul at one point went into the caves and he was, um, says he was taking his easement or whatever. So we, we get the idea. So anyway, verse 25. So they waited till they were, they waited until they were embarrassed. And you know that feeling when you're kind of, you're knocking on the door and nothing's happening. You're like, okay, something's not quite right here. So they waited until they were embarrassed, and still he had not opened the door of the upper room. Therefore, they took the key, they opened the door, and there was their master, fallen dead on the floor. But Ehud had escaped while they delayed, and passed beyond the stone images, and escaped to Sarah. And it happened, verse 27, when he arrived, that he blew the trumpet in the mountains of Ephraim, and the children of Israel went down with him from the mountains, and he led them. Notice, this man who nobody seemed to, there's, there's nothing really mentioned of him, uh, just a nobody really, but, but God would empower him by his spirit, and, and this man is going to be used to bring a great victory in the life of, uh, of Israel. And he led them, in the verse 28, Then he said to them, Follow me, for the Lord has delivered your enemies 
the Moabites into your hand. And so they went down after him. They seized the fords of the Jordan leading to Moab. Now, if you think of a map in front of you and you're looking, a ford is basically a shallow area, usually where there's probably rocks and there's a, a shallow area where the water is not very deep at all. That's what a ford is. It's basically an area where um, the water is not rushing and it's kind of, uh, you can walk across it fairly easily. And so they seized the fords of the Jordan leading to Moab because Moab was on the east side of the Jordan and south of that. And so they did not allow anyone to cross over. Then verse 29, at that same time, and at that time, they killed about 10,000 men of Moab, and these were all stout men of valor, These and not a man of them escaped. So this is a, these are great men of war, great men of battle, uh, war-proven um, war soldiers. And so Moab, verse 30, was subdued that day under the hand of Israel. And notice, the land had rest for 80 years. 80 years is a long time, and they had rest for 80 years. And praise the Lord for that. You know, uh, it took a long time before they would slowly dip back into their sin. And notice what the, the very uh, last verse of this chapter says, because this is um, Shamgar, probably sometime while uh, Ehud was still alive, uh, a gentleman by the name of Shamgar, um, he went after... Or after him was Shamgar the son of Anath, who killed 600 men of the Philistines with an, with an ox goad, and he also delivered Israel. So he must have been um, contemporary with um, uh, Ehud as well, because we read in the very next chapter, the very first verse, what does it say? When Ehud was dead, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. And this is where we're going to see Deborah. And we're going to save uh, Deborah chapters 4 and 5 for next week. Um, actually, I need to share something with you. Um, actually, I'll share it to you at the end. So uh, Deborah 4 and 5 will be our next two chapters that we uh, get into. And there's not a whole lot known about Shamgar. His name actually means sword. Uh, but he used uh, a really unprecedented weapon, this ox goad. Usually they're about 8 to 10 feet long. It's a pole. It's like a stick. And um, it was used to direct animals. And one end of it was like a, a, a chisel blade. Uh, or I'm sorry, it uh, was a sharp metal tipped stick on one end. And on the other end was a... Uh, like a chisel-like blade for cleaning a plow, that, that kind of a, an instrument. And yet he killed 600 men of the Philistines. And we don't really know whether he did that all at one time, whether he was just in a field and they were all coming at him and he took them out, or whether it was something that he did over a period of time. The Bible doesn't really say, but it doesn't really matter. The fact is, is the, the reason he's mentioned here is because the Philistines, just like the Amalekites, just like the Ammonites and some of these other Canaanites um, people, they were enemies against uh, Israel, and especially the Philistines, who God uh, wanted to get rid of completely, and ultimately he did. Um, and so uh, these, uh, this Shamgar was one of the individuals that God had used to eradicate some of the Philistines. And so that's why he's mentioned here. There's nothing really more than his name in the Bible except for in a in passing, so there's not much known about him. But I think we can learn a lot from um, this chapter that we just looked at, you know, how God can just use, uh, and He can use anybody. And if you feel insignificant and 
you don't think that you're, you amount to much, hey, let the Lord use you and ask Him to fill you, and He can do more with your life than uh, someone who's really uh, got all the education, got all the money, and got all those things going for Him. And certainly uh, Ehud, um, you know, what an amazing man, just filled with the Spirit of God. Um, the Spirit came upon him, and he was able to do really wonderful things. So don't despise those things. Um, ask the Lord to fill you, and, 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 and ask Him daily to do it. And let's learn from these things that we read. The Bible says that the Word of God is there for our learning, for our teaching, for our admonition, for our instruction in righteousness, right? And so it's important that we, we don't just become hearers, of the word, but we become doers. Don't think of it as something for someone else, but this is for me today, and it's something that I need to share with others around me. And so let that be the prayer of your heart this week, because guess what? We're surrounded by a lot of people right now who have a lot of questions. They might not even ask. They might even be afraid to ask. They don't even know what to ask, honestly. You and I have the wonderful distinction, the wonderful privilege of knowing not only Jesus and being born again of His Spirit, but we have the wonderful privilege of knowing what the Bible says and what's coming ahead of us. Can you imagine going through what we're going through and yet not having any hope at all, not knowing what the future holds, but hearing here and there that judgment is coming? I mean, that would be pretty, that would rattle anybody, and it ought to get people's attention right now. And there's going to be some. And so, praise the Lord for that. So, be encouraged. But also don't be weary in well-doing. That's the, that's the verse I wanted. Don't get weary in well-doing because in due time, God is going to work. And So just stay faithful to Him. Stay faithful to Him when you are feeling unfaithful. When you feel like nothing's going on, just put one step in front of the other. Do you know that? If, you don't have to do great, huge, sweeping steps to, to, to have victory. It's remember that that phrase that says is that the hare and the tortoise how they how the how the tortoise can actually win the race. You know he's just one foot in front of the other and he's just going really slowly, but he's he just keeps going. And meanwhile, the other guy is running around him and finally he trips and breaks his leg, and then the turtle walks across the finish line. You know that's the way the Christian walk is. Just put one small foot in front of the other and wake up and do the same thing and just continue to be obedient, continue to be prayerful. And just do the right thing. Always do the right thing. And be sacrificial in what you do toward others. You know, if you don't feel like, um, you know, some people in, in, in a situation like in our country right now, they, they'll, they'll feel really introverted and kind of downcast. One of the best things you can do to get out of that hump, if you will, is to go out and do something. Make a, you know, right now you might not be able to go out to somebody's house, but maybe you can make them food. Maybe you can bring it to them in a, a sterilized container and wipe it down with Clorox wipes and set it outside their their doorstep or maybe you can do something for somebody. If you do something for somebody you'll forget about your own troubles and there's a secret to that and may we learn that uh, in everything we do. You know, Self-sacrifice is a good thing. It really keeps us from thinking too much about ourselves because when we think about ourselves too long it gets pretty discouraging doesn't it? And we don't really um, we really just need to be other-centered, other-focused, and that's the secret, I believe. And that's the way I want to hopefully uh, live more of my life like that. I pray that you do, too. So let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this time, and we pray, Jesus, that you would teach us, 
that you'd strengthen us, Lord, as we, um, as we learn from these things that you've written to us in your love letter, the Bible. Lord, we thank you for the, the honest, the painfully honest, even ugly things that are written there, Lord, because we know that we're not alone. And Lord, you don't candy coat, you don't sugarcoat uh, humanity, Lord. You, you show it in all of its vileness, and you also show all the beauty that can be found in man. And more importantly, you show us the beauty of Jesus Christ, the one who has saved us and the one who has blessed us, Father. So have your way with us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.